0: So I guess it's appropriate we get to talk about John the Baptist on a Sunday with baptisms. In the, the context or through the lens of Advent, we are doing the four Gospels. So last week was John, this week Mark. Next week will be Matthew's genealogy. Buckle up for excitement. It's actually going to be amazing. And, uh, and we'll end with Luke before we have our Christmas Eve services on the 24th, which will be, I'm really excited about this, kind of a lessons and carols type service. So a lot of scripture reading, a lot of singing, and of course we'll gather uh, for the Lord's table. Baptism Sunday, it's appropriate, and baptisms make me really happy. I just, I love doing baptisms. I love being a part of baptisms. It's kind of like weddings. They're just, they're times to rejoice and celebrate newness of life, the new creation. So I'm happy today, but I, I'm also sad today. And maybe you don't care how your pastor's feeling when he gets up to preach, but too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad today uh, for a couple reasons. The first is that my, my parents are in Buffalo, New York uh, at the memorial for my, my Uncle Dave, who passed away on um, the day after Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Young man, I mean, early 60s. You know, when you lose a family member, you're always, you're doing that thing of recalling all the stories and all the time you spent together and all the, all the fun and the, you know, the, the great uncle who's throwing you up in the air and taking you out for pizza and, and all that. Then I got a text this morning from Pastor Vince Torres at Blaze Christian Fellowship that our, our dear brother Carlos Montoya, many of you know Carlos, he's the pastor at Blaze, um, his mom had a massive heart attack yesterday and died early this morning. And uh, that's, that's heavy. And so I'd actually like to, if you don't mind, I'd just like to take a couple seconds. I'd just like us to maybe close our eyes for just a minute. And as a church, I told them we were going to do this. I would just like to pray just for, just for a couple seconds for Carlos and his family. Would you join me in doing that? Let's do that now. Lord, hear our prayer. Advent is a a time of great joy and happiness and baptisms. It's also a season of longing, and that's okay. In fact, we're, we're supposed to live in the tension of the two. We're supposed to live in the tension of the two. And I am well aware that there are some here this morning who are, you're doing great. Your life has never been better than it is right now. And and so, you know, we're not here to make everybody feel bad and let's leave on a, a dour and melancholy note. I mean, the gospel won't allow us to stay in that place. And yet I'm also aware that there are some here this morning who are who are sad. <laughs> I know that people come to church. The statistics about this are pretty clear. People come to church, they are screaming inside about things, and yet they remain silent. They are professionals at image management. They are good at smiling while they die inside. And these are the folks that we love and care about who one day it just blows up. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, it's been happening for a long time. It's death by a thousand cuts. It's a slow Burn. So Advent for us is an invitation into these longings, into these realities. To not hide these things, but instead to slow down and to listen and to hear from the Lord who calls. The good news of Advent in our happiness and our sadness, in the tension of both, for we're 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 all a mixture of the two, aren't we? Is that God is not asleep. God is not asleep. He is on the move. God is moving. He is active. He is active now by His Holy Spirit through His Word to us. He's a God of action. Mark's gospel is the gospel of action. Mark, who has received the lion's share of the information about Jesus from Peter and is writing to Gentiles, gives us a gospel of action. A gospel of action for busy people. All right, let's get on with it. What happened? What did Jesus do? What's this all about? A gospel to those who are busy and on the move in the Roman Empire. So Mark gets us right in to the action. And we begin with this gospel, this beginning. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and John the Baptist is on the scene. God's people are crying out, And God is responding. And so now for a third time, Advent is to us an invitation. An invitation to ask this question in church where we need to ask it most. And that is, where do you need to cry out to God? Where do you have longings? Where do you have needs? Where are there things where you you need to say to the Lord, God, I can't hide these things. I can't bury them deep down any longer. I need to bring them to you in honesty. I need to cry out to the God who calls, and I desperately need to hear what you have to say. And so in this four-part gospel series, we're looking at the Lord. Last week, the Lord of all creation. This week, the Lord who calls. And the main point that we're going to unpack here is simply this, that we, in Advent, as the children of God, are those who must. We must. For our own souls, to not wither away and die, to not be those screaming on the inside yet silent, we must cry out to the Lord who calls. So how do we cry out? Well, Mark shows us. We cry out as the children of God. We cry out in anticipation. Advent is a season of anticipation. That's partly why I love the church calendar, by the way. Partly why I love the church calendar is because it writes us into these rhythms, these seasons where we can sort of pause and and allow the Lord to not only be the Lord of of creation and material things, but the Lord of time itself. This is why people went out to go see this weirdo named John in the wilderness. Because the people of God at this point in the history of Israel were full of anticipation. They knew about the prophecy in Daniel. They understood how to do some basic math and they knew and believed that at this time and in this time frame Jesus Yeshua Messiah would come the cries of God's people demanded to be heard and i love that because these are folks who were living in the already of God's promises don't forget that the jews who went out to go see John the Baptist were already quote unquote saved They had already come into the covenant community of God. They were already engaging the rhythms of that community at tabernacle, temple, and synagogue to believe that the Lord is the one who promises and will fulfill those promises. They were already saved, so they were already God's children, and yet they were still filled with longing and need and hope in the promises of God. Indeed, the more that they studied the Old Testament with its signs and symbols and pictures, the more they longed for for the one who would come to fulfill these things. When will God send his warrior king, prophet, priest, to finally and forever crush the head of the serpent? Because the first Adam couldn't do it. And then Adam 1.25, that would be Noah, couldn't do it. Right, God started a new creation. Then Noah planted a vineyard, and God hammered and did something weird with his son. So Noah failed. Well, what about Adam one point five, the nation of Israel itself? Well, they failed too. They tried and tried, but couldn't even keep the law. They couldn't even keep themselves pure from the idols of of the other pagan uh, cities and nations in the ancient Near East. So this was a people like us, full of longing, and that's why I love John the Baptist, because it's as if God says fine. I'm ready. I know what I'm doing. And he sends John the Baptist, who in every sense of the word is the last Old Testament prophet. I don't know if you ever thought about John the Baptist in that way. Malachi ends the Old Testament. There's 400 years of silence. And before Messiah comes, there is one final prophet to bring interpretation and hope to the Old Covenant, and that's John the Baptist. And who does God begin to call? Does God go to the the ends of the earth, right out of the gate? Does He go to the lost? God goes to His children. He goes to you. He goes to His children, to His own, to those who are already in the the community of God, full of longing and hope and need. John the Baptist comes onto the scene to call those who are already the children of God with one word, and that is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Confess your sins, be honest with the Lord, bring Him your longings, turn from those things that you know do not satisfy, because the King is coming. They were filled with anticipation, because they also knew the reality of the not yet. So yes, they were already God's children, but... Messiah had not come. They were living in the reality of the not yet. They knew where the path led. Most of these folks knew their Old Testament very well. So they knew Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 was our call to worship this morning, and I would encourage you to go and read it. John even joked, he's like, man, I just want to keep reading Isaiah 40. It's so good. It's so good. They knew where the path led. Comfort, comfort my people. And have you ever felt this way? I wonder, God, you promised. You promised you would do it. You promised you would help. You promised you would comfort. Comfort. Comfort your people. And they longed for it. So everything that's going on in the life and the ministry of John the Baptist, the fact that he is you know, sort of in this community outside the camp of Jerusalem, he separated himself from the religious powers and principalities, he wears camel's hair, he's a weirdo, he we eats locusts, He's out in the wilderness and in the desert. All of these are are symbols for the fact that God is doing something new. He is going to call his people out into something new to purify them, to purify them of both their, their hunger for power and religion to do a new thing. They are God's people now, washed and waiting, and the waiting is hard. And so I, I just want to invite you this morning, you know, as John said, maybe you're, maybe you're here kind of out of a sense of duty. Maybe you're here with a lot of questions. Maybe you're cynical. Maybe you're skeptical. Maybe your belief is hanging on by a thread. These were exactly the people that the Lord called out into a place where in solitude they could hear God speak. They are washed In a baptism of repentance, and they are waiting. So we cry out with them in anticipation. But don't you find, as I do, that so often our our obstacles, our issues, in two ways, we'll get to that, interfere with our ability to cry out and to hear the Lord who calls. So we cry out in anticipation, but our obstacles interfere false gods, idols, places that we go looking for an answer to our longings. We never get the answer that we're longing for. Our striving so often leaves us exhausted. Saw this great Black Friday meme being shared. I'm sure it was Rebecca Zappi that shared it, you know? Uh, She is the queen of memes, you know, something about, and it was one of these pictures of people like clawing through each other, blood everywhere in the middle of Walmart on Black Friday. I mean, not really the blood part, but like just raging, clawing, reaching for that TV that's 13.87% off. And it said Black Friday, the day when Americans gather to, you know, kill each other for a cheap TV, the day right after they have given thanks for the things they already have. It's was like, wow, yeah. Man, our obstacles interfere with the reality of our anticipation. We, we call out to the Lord, but so often there's noise, there's interference. Our stuff and our striving hinder us. And so I think this text and Advent wants to confound our expectations and humble us and set us on the right path. First of all, our issues, and we all have them. Advent invites our honesty. It invites us to be real about our doubts and our difficulties, whether it's contentment, whether it's how much money you have, whether it's something going on in one of your relationships right now, whether it's one of your kids or grandkids or your spouse, whether it's your job, whether it's the fact that you don't get any sleep anymore. Whatever it might be, Advent invites us to be real about who we are and what we need. I love this quote from uh, Peter Lightheart. It's a New Testament scholar. Lightheart says this, the first advent begins in Genesis 3 when Yahweh comes calling in the spirit of the day, the spirit of light for Adam to confront his sin. Since then, every time the Lord of light comes, it means for us exposure, shame and judgment because of our trespasses. And so every time the light comes, we are tempted to Reach for the fig leaves in our lives. Advent is an invitation to resist that temptation. Don't blame others for your sins. Don't try to cover up your sins. Don't turn from the light but towards it. Ask God to shine the light of Jesus into your darkness and to overcome that darkness because the light that exposes us is also the light of life, even at times when it feels like death. So we have to be honest about our obstacles. Look at these folks, 400 years of silence. Some of you guys can barely wait 30 minutes for a table at lunch, and I'll only wait 15 because I'm an only child. So where's, where's the Greggy table? Yeah, I know. There's, there's no way in, in, in which Doubt was not a reality for so many of these folks. Yes, we believe. Yes, we've read the prophecies. But 400 years is a long time. Ten generations. Ten generations. I mean, the hope starts to fade when you're hearing the same story from your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa. It begs the question of us, how long are we willing to hang on? The truth of our obstacles is that it's painful when God feels silent. But it's more than that. It's more than, you know, the the time of 400 years. It's also the situation in which Israel finds itself. And for some of you, this is your situation. They are under Roman oppression. This is their circumstance. So not only their, their doubts because it's been so long, but the circumstances which lend themselves to unbelief. This Roman oppression, yes, yes, it was very peaceful and all that, as long as you kept your mouth shut and stayed in line. But it was functional slavery. So now I want you to imagine the Jewish people and their stories and their psalms and their their Torah, those first five books, precious, treasured, five books of the Bible. I want you to imagine them telling their children, well, yeah, God, God set us free from Egypt, but here we are again kind of yeah, and then, and then we were exiled in Babylon, and the judgment of God came down upon us for our sin and idolatry, but then the Lord brought us back, Ezra and Nehemiah, we rebuilt the wall and the temple, and the Lord set us free again, and here we kind of are again, under the functional slavery of the Roman occupation. Yeah, we, we, we trust the Lord, but these guys have Swords. So we're we're no different than these folks. <laughs> Issues. We all have them. That's our stuff, but what of our striving? I think our temptation, the temptation of the fig leaves, is this: to strive for answers in our own strength and in our own understanding. And they always end up being exhausting answers. What we need to understand about those people in the first century is that they. They began to try everything they could to pacify their own longings and to rouse God to act. This is the sin that is being referred to in the text we read this morning. Because Mark not only quotes Isaiah 40, but the second half of his quote is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. I'd encourage you to read it, It it's a humbling passage, the very last book of the Old Testament. The sin of Malachi 3.1 is that the priests in particular had led the people astray and they were wearying to God. The Lord says, you've worn me out with your religion. You've worn me out by trying to fix it on your own. You're such a doer. You're so type A. You're so in control. You're such a fixer. And it's not working. It's never worked. There's nothing new under the sun. And because it didn't work, what did they do? Israel and us, time and time again, they compromised. All right, we can't, we can't fix it on our own. Well, then we'll, we'll compromise. And so Malachi 3.1 says they just ended up, and see if this resonates with, you know, 2019 in this country. They ended up calling evil good and good evil. By the way, it's not just for us right now. It's for all ages since the fall. This happened in two main ways. The, the first was and these are just things that we need to be on guard about. How did they, how did they commit this sin in Malachi one? these exhausting answers? Well, first, they, they postured themselves in false powers. And so the Sadducees in particular, who were very politically active and organized, the Sadducees, who didn't want to talk about, you know, all the weird super spiritual stuff. They just wanted to align themselves politically with Herod, who was aligned to regional powers, who was aligned to Rome. So they postured themselves for power False alliances, something they had been warned about repeatedly in the Old Testament. Do not align yourself with foreign powers and foreign gods. Trust me, I can do it. Because every time the Israelites did that, they ended up in the degradation of false worship with Asherah poles and, you know, altars to Baal. So posturing for power, and the second thing they they did was they upped their religious game isn't this what we are so prone to do with our fig leaves when we're presented with the obstacles to the longing and anticipation that we all have the pharisees were all about precision and practice they were as it were the rules committee churches should not have rules committees precision and practice this is how we're going to bring in the kingdom of god Can, Can you see why they were so confounded when a weird-looking guy is out in the desert with camel's hair and locusts? No, no, no. It's through religion precisely to the letter of the law and the practice of that religion and discipline and being stoned to death if you don't do it, that we will overcome our obstacles. Friends, we do the same thing all the time. We do the same thing all the time. Or here's another version of that. Same coin, different side. Consider some of the communities that thought, well, you know, maybe it's not through our precision and practice, but maybe if we separate ourselves from the bad, bad world, then we can get God to be roused and come down and do what he's promised. And in that sense, the example of the Essenes is a good one. Now, I'm not beating these people up, okay? I I believe that, you know, maybe their hearts were in the right place and they, they even thought they had good intentions. But this is where the gospel breaks in. The gospel breaks into man striving for power, religious precision, or separating ourselves from the bad things around us with a better word. The Essenes went out to to build their own communities in the desert, you know, to not have one or two ritual purifications a week, but maybe one or two a day so that we can get right and keep getting right and keep working and keep striving, and God will come. And into the exhaustion of all of this, The Lord speaks a better word. Because nothing wearies God like our striving. And here's the irony. Nothing is more wearying to us than that same striving. So we cry out in anticipation, but in the same moment must be real and honest about these obstacles that interfere, our doubts, our circumstances, and the ways that we so often try to tie fig leaves around those things. When Jesus came onto the scene, many people, especially the poor and the powerless, those not politically connected, those without all the religious trappings and funny hats and long robes, had gotten to a point where they were basically over it. Let's get over it so we can get on with it. And I wonder in all the things we've just said, if you, if you can see yourself in any of those places, I know I can. I can. So Mark tells us that it's out of this that the Lord calls. Here's the good news. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he doesn't just speak, but is a better word. He puts the devil and all of our doubts on notice. And he's not just a better word, he's God's final word. And so Advent, Advent is both joy and longing. And the way that God meets us in that is both in word and in deed. God moves us in our longings and our anticipation through the obstacles along the path of Isaiah chapter 40 and brings us home to Himself through His Son. That is the kingdom that John proclaims. And just close with this. There's two ways that God moves us. First, from exhaustion to rest. And I wonder if you look at your life this morning. I wonder if you think about your longings and pains during this Advent season, and your joys as well. Where do you need rest? Where are you weary? Where are you weary from striving? Where are you weary from coping? You know, if I have enough food, if I have enough drink, if I buy a new thing, where are you weary from, you know, the next dopamine hit? You know, not that we shouldn't feast and drink and shop, by all means do, and praise the Lord while you do it, but But it's never enough. Where are you weary? And so the Lord who calls is the Lord who moves. He calls in word, but He moves indeed. He puts His money where His mouth is through His Son. And in Advent, His answer to our obstacles and hope in anticipation is that He moves us from exhaustion to rest. We are no longer baptized by water only, but now baptized in the Holy Spirit. We are sealed. We are loved. We are empowered to pursue, by grace, the gratitude of holiness. We can confess with John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19, I am not the Christ. And then a few chapters later, Let him become greater, that I may become less. From exhaustion to rest. God reaches into both the cries and the silence of our lives with the love of His Son. And so, for those who are weary this morning, for those who are exhausted and striving, hear this good news. He is yours because you are His, if you will believe. Martin Luther puts it this way, Oh, to spend Advent dissolved in perpetual joy, the Son of God is ours The Son of God is ours. For all of our anticipations, for all of our difficulties and sin, amazing grace and all the more, may the Christmas season be for us not a time of drumming up sentiment and striving, but instead a time of encountering and knowing real love, love that has moved toward us, joy and hope in the Son of God. And the gospel of Jesus is this, that he sees our longing and responds. He hears our cries and comes down. God moves us from our longing into belonging through the finished work of Christ, his son. Reminds me that we don't need to turn back to our obstacles and rocks along the way of our path, but instead we can fly to Christ our Lord. To end with this poem, You've heard it before, but I love it. Run, child, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Come, child, come, the gospel says, and gives us wings to fly instead. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you meet us in our anticipation and in all of our longings, that you sent John the Baptist to declare the kingdom and prepare the way to those who are longing so desperately for you to show up, as are we. So help us, Lord, not to be mired in, in these obstacles that interfere in our issues, in our stuff and striving. We know it doesn't work. Lord, would you convict us? Would you help us, as John said, to confess and to turn from doubt, from the oppression of circumstances, Help us not to posture for power, drum up enough religious rigor to try to rouse you to action. For Lord, you have moved. You are not only the God who calls, but you are the God who calls us out of darkness into light, who moves us from our weariness to rest, Lord, from our longing to belonging. As we prepare to come to your table, Would you help us to taste and see that that is the truth for us now in this season? And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.